2: To work twice as hard for the same
0: motherfucking title But I realize that
1: I probably won't be so lucky
0: Welcome back prom party Hello. If you're like, wow, BJ, real 900 operator voice of you today, it's because I had a pain flare up at three in the morning last
1: night. I got no sleep. So my voice is showing it. It's fine. Some people like it when you're sultry sounding.
0: Yeah. The person who probably likes it most is a friend of the show and former guest Devon Taylor. So I guess you're welcome, Devon. And what's interesting (laughs) is that when we had Devon on the show, we talked about Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. And today we're talking about another British film. Look at how that comes. Life just being poetic and full circle. Friends, today we are talking about a movie that I'm sure a lot of people are going to be very, very excited about. I know when we announced it on our Patreon, people were extremely excited. And we are talking today about Bend It Like Beckham. But friends, we're not alone today. Our guest today is Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Queer Studies, and the podcast host of Whatever I'll Watch It, Alexia Arani. Hi. Hi. (laughs)
2: Hi. Sorry, I got so excited. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Me too. Thank you. So, Bend It Like Beckham, why this movie for you? Oh my gosh. So, I was obsessed with this movie when it came out on DVD in the U.S., I had a huge crush on Kiera Knightley, which I will want to unpack a little bit later. Um, And I revisited it maybe about six months ago and felt like a lot of my feelings had shifted. And while I still liked the movie and was shocked at how gay it was, um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot to unpack in the movie. I feel like there's so many different ways you can interpret the different themes around like, Modernity, nationalism, multiculturalism, queerness. So I just felt like there'd be so much for us to talk about. I agree
0: completely. This is a movie that for me, I watched a lot growing up because a lot of my friends of like elementary school to junior high ages were the goth kids and the jock girls. Like that was <laughs> my group of people. So a lot of them were on. AYSO soccer teams and eventually played into high school. So, this was like a very seminal movie for a lot of them. So, I watched it a lot. And obviously, being a preteen white person in America, I was not able to fully unpack a lot of the themes in Bennett Lake Beckham until I was much older. Mm-hmm. And upon this most recent rewatch, there was just so many things jumping out at me and it's like oh I finally have the language to actually Mm -hmm. explain what this means so agree with you completely um I wanted to save Harmony for last because her exposure to this movie is wild to me
1: um yeah I here's the thing Alexia when you brought like the list of movies I was like, oh, I would love to cover any of these. I went, oh, sick. Uh, Bend It Like Beckham. That's a soccer movie, right? It's summer. We haven't done a sports movie in like almost a year. <laughs> That'll be really cool. And I asked BJ, is this like a like Mike situation where it's like someone, it, it's, it's, a, it's a David Beckham version of that? And she goes, no, not at all. I go, oh, all right. So we put it on and I um, realized I knew nothing about this movie. I didn't know it was British. I didn't know a damn thing about it other than like a vague idea of like, okay, the poster's got two girls and that's all I remember. I had this idea in my head of like, oh, it's another soccer movie. The only point of reference I have is maybe like, she's the man, but like, not with gender stuff. And this has, like, got way more going on than She's the Man does.
0: <laughs> I mean, there's plenty to dissect in She's the Man, which we will eventually do. It is on the list. People have been asking. Um, I'll take your
1: word for it. I haven't seen that one either.
0: <laughs> but what was so fascinating is when we were watching it, and it becomes very apparent that this is centered around, a like, a British Indian, like, second generation child, you were like, I had no idea this was part of this story. And I was like, yeah, that's like a huge part of it. And we ended up looking at the posters. And the poster in the UK release is uh, just like a – I guess decapitated body. That sounds terrible, but like. The, the head's out of frame. The head is out of frame. That's it's a not much actually nicer way decapitated. <laughs> yes, it's a headless uh, body in a sari holding uh, soccer shoes behind the back. And I was like, wow. that is really striking. I completely understand like what that poster is saying. Then you look at the posters that we got in the US, and it is very much. Kira Knightley focused, mm-hmm. uh, which is really telling to me. There's a couple versions of it where there's that picture of Jess and Jules like cheering, and they have photoshopped Kira Knightley's face so that it's not her cheering, it's her looking at the camera and smiling while Jess is cheering. And I was like, oh, mm. I don't like that. <laughs> that is uh, definitely prioritizing the secondary lead in this movie because. Mm-hmm. America, but you know, these are things that we will <laughs> we will definitely get into. So, Alexia, if you had to explain what Bend It Like Beckham is about to someone who's never seen it, what is going on in this movie?
2: Yeah, so as you mentioned, Jess Barma is our protagonist, and she's a second-generation Pujambi Indian living in London with her family. And she's obsessed with David Beckham. She's a super talented soccer player. And she eventually gets recruited to play for the girls team by Jules, who's Keira Knightley. Um, And we basically explore how both Jess and Jules follow their passion for soccer, despite pressure from their family to be more feminine, to focus on getting a husband. Um, And despite the fact that this is such a gay movie, there's this random romance thrown in with their male soccer coach because this was 2002 and they wanted it to make money. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And our soccer coach, Joe, is played by Jonathan Rhys-Meyers and... There are so many shots of him in this movie where they were like, he has huge lips and a brooding face. We just really need to focus on that. It's alarming how, how often it <laughs> happens.
2: I feel like he's constantly doing the Zoolander face. Yes. And a part of it is
0: that's just his face. Like you look at him and you're like, oh, that's why they cast you in that Elvis miniseries, which he was fantastic in, mind you. But you look at it and you're like, oh, no, no, I see what
1: I see what they were doing here with him. Oh, yes. He's very I, pouty, he's very pretty. This is why he is my favorite David Bowie knockoff.
2: That man is also a gateway to lesbianism. <laughs> You're not <laughs> <is>. wrong though. <laughs> he has like all of like those pretty features
0: mm-hmm. for sure. Wonderful. Well, before we dive in too much deeper into Bendit Like Beckham, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. <laughs> Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash Ends at Prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only one dollar. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag This Ends at Prom or at This Ends at Prom. All righty. So Harmony, set the stage for us. What was coming out or existing around the time of Bend it Like Beckham?
1: This one's difficult to nail down because it's international. So like looking at what was released in America around this time kind of skews it. But I did notice a weird trend that uh, that I didn't really think about until I was doing research for this, which is that. In the late '90s and 2000s, we became very interested in importing British films, probably for reasons like with like very masculine-driven ones, like *Train Spotting* or any Guy Ritchie film. Like the low, the cost of them was really low, so the the profit was really good margins. But also, um, Hugh Grant made like a billion dollars in romcoms, mm-hmm. and. On one of the posters for this, it favorably compares it to Bridget Jones's Diary, which I had to ask BJ. Yeah. It's like the funniest British comedy since Bridget Jones's Diary. I'm like, uh, okay. I know nothing about this movie other than BJ goes, it's bad. I don't want to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I had to ask her. I was like, so wait, Bridget Jones's Diary is not a teen film, but like everyone I know always watched it with their mom. Is it because Hugh Grant was there and that just kind of was it? And she goes, yeah, that's precisely what that was. So that's, I th- I think we had like a novel interest in British culture, especially coming off the backs of like Spice Girls and Girl Power. Mm. And leading into the 2000s, it's this kind of weird period between 9-11 and Mean Girls where most of the teen fare was very safe. It was not super confrontational. You had some outliers that were more edgy like Party Monster or Pumpkin or 13, but like those were basically indie releases. They didn't make money. So the closer things you had to what a teen film would look like during this period was like A Walk to Remember or Lizzie McGuire or Princess Diaries, Freaky Friday, uh, maybe Blue Crush. A lot of things that either are Disney or feel like Disney... And I think it's because it's just this tumultuous time in American history that's making us look abroad, where it, it, it's kind of like how we love to set films in like the 90s and earlier, because then we don't have to account for cell phones in our writing. It's like setting a teen film post 9-11 without going, let's not account for the everything going on in this country. Let's go somewhere else where we don't even have to think about it. Lizzie McGuire is going to Rome. Why not?
0: I think that's a really good point. And I think that's also what makes Bennett Lake Beckham such an important film, because while I would not describe this film as safe by any stretch of the imagination... Oh, no, no, no. I do think that this movie is accessible, but it was willing to have a little bit tougher of conversations than a lot of the other movies that came out around this time period. Um, and I don't want to necessarily say, like... That's, of course, why it was successful, because that's not true. There's a lot of reasons why this movie was successful. But I think that's why this movie is still looked back upon so fondly, because it was willing to be like, hey, let's have kind of uncomfortable conversations, even though everything around us feels uncomfortable, given the state of the world at this point. Um, But I think we needed that. We needed that outlet, and we weren't getting it as teenagers.
1: Well, yeah, I think this is a movie that's much more worthy of praise because it has plenty going on as opposed to like, I don't know, uh, Amanda Bynes going for a friendly romp in What a Girl Wants, where it's like, that's, that's got stuff. This has way more stuff.
0: I would agree. Alexia, how about you? Any theories?
2: So it's interesting hearing y'all talk about this because I hadn't really thought about the 9-11 context that much, but this is a movie that I think really celebrates multiculturalism, during a time where there was a lot of rampant xenophobia, mm-hmm. um, especially towards, you know, a Sikh family like the, the father wears a turban and talks mm-hmm. about experiencing racism mm-hmm. because of that. And I hear what you're saying, that it explores some tough themes, but I also feel like it does play it kind of safe in terms of like having the traditional brown family that needs to like lead into the independence of their daughter um and letting her play these sports and at the end of the day it's like look uh joe this white guy can play cricket with them and everyone can be happy and live in the same Mm -hmm. place together and bond over sports so i kind of feel like it was maybe creating this like imaginary of how we wanted ethnic and racial relations to be during a time where it was not that
0: totally i agree with that completely there is a couple moments specifically that i think kind of prove that theory uh Probably the best example is after somebody uses a slur towards Jess at a game, and she's oh really upset about it, and she's trying to explain to Joe, like, you don't understand this, and his response was, I'm Irish, I get it. I
2: was screaming. <laughs>
0: and it's like, okay, buddy, um, maybe to some extent you understand, but no, you're like, you still are white. <laughs> That's not not the same weight at all, my dude. <laughs> Yeah, so
2: since we're already talking about this, um, I feel like I'm always shouting out Sarah Ahmed, who's one of my favorite feminist theorists, and she's written a lot about this film, a lot of it quite critical. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, um, but part of the things that she writes about is that racism in this film is really depicted as something that like brown people need to let go of, that like feeling hung up on their hurt feelings is actually the thing holding them back. Um, And we see that in that exchange you're talking about where Joe is basically like, I'm Irish. Like, we all get picked on. You just have to keep playing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it's really the same transformation we see in the father as well, where in the beginning, you know, he doesn't want her to play soccer because he experienced racism in sports. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes that he's holding her back and he needs to let go of his fear of racism to let her, you know, continue in her life.
0: I'm really glad that you brought that point up because I – I do agree with that sentiment, and I like what you said earlier about how this movie sort of operates as a fantasy about what we wanted race relations to be like, because I feel like at their core, 90% of teen movies are fantasies. They are painting a Mm -hmm. world that we do not live in, whether it's something like Mean Girls and Heathers, where those sorts of cliques obviously exist, but not to that extent. Like, this is some cartoon villainy happening here. But then you also have that in the positive with love stories that are completely unrealistic or situations (laughs) like this where, like, these race relations are also, in my opinion, and obviously I can fuck off into the sun if I'm wrong because, again, I'm white, but it also feels as if a lot of the racism depicted in this movie is depicted from an individual level. Like, there mm-hmm. are some people who are gonna be shitty to you, not there is a systemic oppressive state that exists for people who are non white.
2: Yeah, I agree completely.
0: And those bloody English cricket players threw me out of their club like a dog. I never complained. On the contrary, I vowed that I will never play again. Who suffered? But I don't want Jessie to suffer. I don't want her to make the same mistakes that her father made of accepting life, accepting situations. I want her to fight. And I want her to win. Because I've seen her playing, she's she's brilliant. I don't think anybody has the right of stopping There's so much to talk about. Um, but let's first focus on our character of Jess and just sort of who she is, what she represents. So, Lexia, how do you feel about Jess as a character?
2: Um, you know, my first instinct is I do really like Jess. Um, and I'm sure, I don't know if we'll get into this now or later, but I think one of the things as people have revisited this film that's striking is just... Doesn't seem like much happened with this actress after this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know for myself, you know, as I mentioned, watching this as a kid, I had a huge crush on Keira Knightley. And going back and watching it as an adult, I have a huge crush on Jess. Um, Oh, okay. Interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I definitely think there's something there about my own sort of journey of decolonizing attraction and learning about the way white supremacy shaped what I was taught was beautiful in the early 2000s. So watching this time, I'm just really struck um, by Jess's character. And I mean, you know, I can have my critiques of the ways that her culture is perhaps portrayed as holding her back, but I don't want to get too hung up on that because I feel like we also see a similar storyline with Jules, you know, and her, mm-hmm. her her white English culture. Because um, overall, I think her story arc is very relatable to viewers for many different reasons. Um, I know for me, the obvious one is this is clearly a metaphor for queerness. Mm-hmm. And I think any queer kid can really relate to what Jess is going through. Um, and I love the fact that she she's really torn, you know, like she really does love her family and want to respect her family and values her, her culture. But at the same time, she does need to be true to herself. So I think that's a story that pretty much anyone can relate to, you know, depending on their own experiences. I
0: definitely agree. And my feelings on Jess as well is that, that she, for the most part, is sort of our guide into the world. So we're seeing a lot of things through her lens and through her perspective, which, of course, anytime we have that with a teenager, they, immediately that's an unreliable narrator. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not it's meant to be an insult by any stretch of the imagination. It's just like our perspectives – when we're teenagers i mean this is why we get like the oh my god my mom's ruining my life kind of mentality mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily true in the grand scheme of things but it might be how you feel in that moment um i mean when she's practicing learning how to do david beckham's kick you know she she has that visual of her family being in the way of her goal mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally <laughs> in the way of her goal um so i feel like that is a very relatable feeling as a teenager of thinking that it's your family it's your your environment i think in a lot of uh i think in a lot of like white teen movies it's presented as like your location like your small town is what is holding you back Mm -hmm. um so i think that it's very interesting that in this it's presented as like your culture or your family um interesting you know just pressing save in my brain on that one um and I love that you mentioned having a crush on Kira Knightley when you were younger, <laughs> and then you know, Jess, as you're older. Um, I have been ride or die for Pinky ever since day oh one. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I feel like even as like a teenager, I was like, no, she's fun. <laughs> she she would be someone that I would love to hang out with. But as a as an adult looking back, it's like, oh no, Jess is like the grounded person that I would probably actually need in my in my life. Uh, So that's definitely how I feel. Harmony, how about you?
1: Well, see, like this whole discussion is really interesting, because right before we sat down to record, BJ was reflecting uh, uh, with me on the kids that played like soccer in her high school and how all of them, all the girls ended up being straight. And like, there's this reputation of soccer being extremely gay. And I think it's Really funny that uh, the only out lesbian in my high school was uh, the captain of the soccer team. So <laughs> that was just an interesting tidbit. But I, I have I have a question. Uh, so this is one of those things where I'm like, I don't have the research or the history. So I'm like a little out of my depth on some of the details of this film. Um, is this a situation? Do we know at all? Um, so, so Camp, which we laid into in June, a, a film that I did, did not enjoy my time with. Um, They had to change the sexuality of one of the characters because the studio demanded it. Was this supposed to be a queer film? Because the whole time I'm sitting here, like for the first third especially, I'm just turning to BJ going, why is it so gay? Why is everything about this like so gay? And she's like, well, just spoilers. There is a subplot with that. I'm like, okay, but is it intentional? Because I had this realization where we're watching it and... BJ was saying, like, oh, this is how I was with my best friend. Like, we were very touchy-feely. This was just a thing we did. And maybe it's that in a lot of like the sports movies I've seen growing up, which I are American, so there's probably at least some difference there. But also they were boy movies. You don't you don't touch your friends in boy movies. You aren't close with them. And that adds this element from my experience where this looks more queer because it's so much more intimate looking, even though it's just a bond of like teammates. Did, well, do we know anything about, like, was this changed at some point? Yes.
2: Yeah. So it was definitely supposed to be gay. Um, there, I mean, it's still gay, right? But it was meant to be more explicitly oh. gay. Um, I've heard mixed things between the director was worried about backlash from the queer Desi community in the UK mm. and that the studio was worried about not making enough money.
1: Which is funny because this is the highest grossing soccer movie in history. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, what were you learning about it? It's the highest globally, but in the States, it's at
1: third. Oh, yeah, it's behind uh, She's the Man and Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell. Oh, oh my
0: God. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> cinematic so classic. <laughs> <laughs> so something interesting that I read in terms of Jess's characterization is this idea of bending. Like, bend it like Beckham is not only just a reference to the actual kick, which I've tried to explain to people because Americans don't really care about soccer, football, what have you. Um, It's essentially like kicking a curveball. Like, that's the best way I can describe Mm -hmm. it. Um, But so not only does it reference that, but it also is this idea that people like Jess and to some extent in this movie, Jules, are not breaking the rules of their family. They're bending them, which Mm -hmm. I have some conflicting thoughts about. Um, but Alexia, I was curious what you feel about that idea of rule bending versus rule breaking.
2: Well, now I feel like I want to hear your thoughts. And <laughs> <respond>. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so
0: the thoughts that I have is that I feel like bending rules inadvertently positions the person that's doing it um into kind of a model minority box of they're not going against the status quo it makes it feel like both sides in a little bit which i am not super a fan of like i wish that teen characters had like strong autonomy but at the same time um i grew up in a very very close-knit uh very italian family And there is a sense of familial obligation that is really difficult to explain to people that are not from cultures where family is so important. So I also understand the rule bending, and I feel very seen by the rule bending because I really got good at it, just constantly being a velociraptor, testing the fences on things. Um, So I, I get that as well. So that's why I'm conflicted, because I feel like in my adult brain... I'm like, no, break the rules, do what you need to do. But then at the same time, I'm like, oh, but you also have all of these conflicting feelings about familial obligation and also culture and wanting to maintain culture when the world is trying to erase your culture and why it's important to maintain that. And it just gets so messy. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in a weird positionality with this movie because um, like I do have Indian family. My grandfather immigrated to the U.S. from India, but he kind of took the opposite route of Jess's family, where he very much was interested in assimilation, giving up his religious practices, language. So I've really grown up with it without like a strong connection or sense of my sort of cultural background. So. And researching for this movie, you know, I saw a lot of things written by queer Desis about um, how affirming it felt for them to see a family that looked like their own and to see a character that looked like them. That even though, you know, I I am Indian, that's not something I can relate to because my upbringing was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I just wanted to acknowledge that as well, that Jess is a really important character for a lot of folks in the queer Desi community. Totally, totally. Um, But about the Bend It, I'm actually thinking more about queerness again, and I'm like stuck on Sarah Ahmed for some reason. (laughs) Um, But she has a book, Queer Phenomenology, where she basically talks about straightness as like a literal direction. So straights move straight up the relationship escalator, get the kids, all of that. And then queerness is kind of like this bendy, curvy line that takes you to unexpected directions. So I'm actually thinking of the bendiness about queerness in this movie, um, mm-hmm. and the ways that we have to just kind of stuff ourselves around the quarters of heterosexuality and what's what's expected from us. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really interesting, and I think,
0: and this is just me maybe fantasy booking or being that person. I think Jules, um, I again, she says that she is not a lesbian. She says that she is straight. She shows that she has affections for Joe. But I feel like if we were to revisit Jules like ten years later after she's left her hometown and gone to college in the States, I feel like somebody would be like, Have you heard about Compet? And <laughs> she would break that down a little bit. And that's again where like it gets complicated because on one hand, I love that there is this character who does kind of follow under that very specific like tomboy trope that I know plenty of people have mixed feelings about as they should with any trope we should all have mixed feelings about tropes um but the fact that there is this character that doesn't subscribe to like the very specific and rigid like femme gender roles that are often put upon people who are assigned female at birth I think that that's great but then at the same time in my heart of hearts I'm also like but what if you just don't fully understand attraction and how that can function because it's the early 2000s and we aren't having these conversations yet Mm -hmm. so i'm curious how you know jules would end up in in the future
2: as far as i'm concerned jules is canonically bisexual and jess is a lesbian who likes the attention of a white guy (laughs) Ooh,
0: i love this read actually i i subscribe to this read i think that that's great Because, yeah, that romance with Joe, first off, like, the power dynamics are not great. He's their coach. Not awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. But Jess is so much more alive when she's with Jules than when she's with Joe. Joe's just kind of there.
2: She has no chemistry with him.
0: None. And, And he's kind of a hunk. Like, you would think that this is somebody that you would be very excited about, but she just, it's just not there. There's no connection there. But you get her on screen. With jewels, and they are both just glowing.
2: Yeah, there's no connection, and they they establish so many times throughout the movie that she's not into dudes. Like there's multiple times where she's like, "Me, a man? Why?" Or like the girls watching them play soccer, like, "Oh, that guy's cute," and she looks confused, like, "What? That guy is cute?" Like she's so established as gay, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. we're supposed to think that she is interested in Joe. I don't buy it i <laughs> you know what it might be um have y'all ever had that like queer experience of like you have a crush on a woman and to get closer to her you're like oh i have a crush on the guy that she has a crush on or that she's dating
1: oh um i've not that had that specifically but i've definitely been on like an okay cupid and it's just like we're a fun-loving couple just looking for some whatever and i'm like the girl's cute i'll tolerate the guy <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, I definitely during high school would be very flirty with a guy that I knew had a crush on like a girl that I had a crush on because it was this weird like proxy for me where I was mm-hmm. like now I get to be the third wheel when I really just want to be really close to this person.
2: Yeah, because there is that moment where um, when Jess goes to Jules' room for the first time and she sees the picture of Jules and Joe, she seems really like bummed out about it. And Mm -hmm. I don't believe for a second she's bummed because she likes Joe. I feel like she's hurt because she likes Jules. Um, So there's just this weird like cross mixing of desire that's happening here where I think proxy is definitely what's going on.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, the fact that the whole B-plot to this movie is just mistaken relationship conundrums that, like, the parents keep ending up with these kids. I shouldn't say kids. They're, like, 18. But uh, the fact that that one scene where they're, like, post-kissing Joe and Jules and Jess are fighting in Jules' room and everything about... Like, they added, like, two lines of dialogue for there to be this miscommunication so that Mom could get, like, a punchline kind of out of it because... She assumes the worst because she lives in a sheltered little life, but it's it, just nothing about it. Like clearly, that's the joke, that's the setup that we're supposed to assume one thing, but everything about it is like, oh no, he's he's an afterthought in this dialogue. What you thinking, Juliet? I saw you with my own eyes. You were kissing after you were She's not stupid, you know. And anyway, look at the clothes you wear. Mother. <laughs>
0: Just because I wear trackies and play sport does not make me a lesbian! (coughs) Me and Jess were fighting because we both fancied our
1: coach, Joe. Joe? What, man? Joe? Yeah, as in male. Joe. Joe.
0: Our coach. Joe. Man. Joe. Yeah, the the conflict between the two of them may be like oh, we had a crush on the same guy. But listening to them argue, like it I feel like I'm listening to a couple. Like yeah. <laughs> it just how it is and I guess to some extent, I mean, my best friend and I anytime we had any sort of disagreement, like that was way worse than any breakup I've ever gone through because mm. that is my person when you're growing up. And It seems like Jess doesn't really have a huge community of people that she considers friends. Like, she has, like, the guys that she plays soccer with. She obviously has – how does
1: he fully identify? Do we know? I mean, we know that he likes Beckham a lot.
2: I'd say gay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I feel like – because I don't know if they outright say it, but, like, he's – gay um and their family is obviously like oh but you guys have known each other forever you should be together Mm -hmm. and they obviously know why that can't happen and it's just not fully like put on front street (laughs) because again we had to censor a lot of things in the 2000s so subtext is, is champion here um But she doesn't really have this, like, massive community of friends, at least to her knowledge. So when she does have jewels, that becomes, like, the thing you have to fixate on. Like, this becomes your person because she – like, they get each other on a level that a lot of people don't because they are competitive athletes. And that is a very specific world. I know we talked about it a little bit on our Stick It episode when I talked extensively about being a competitive baton twirler for almost 20 years and how – Those relationships were so important to me because none of my friends understood what any of it was, and it was hard to have to constantly express the importance of that part of my life to people who were not in it.
1: Yeah, and like I don't understand maybe the intricacies of how this particular sport works because I played it when I was like four years old. But I think these two also are, like, the best players on the team, and they have this relationship on the field where one of them sets up the shot for the mm-hmm. other, and that's how they get all of their points, and, like, they pretty much lead everything. And there there's this closeness in that sense that's, like, so powerful that you get good news after a game, and then you kiss your friend on the lips, which... <laughs> Apparently, BJ does that with her friends. I have never done that before.
0: Well, I mean, not friends. now, not, not now that I'm an adult, <laughs> but when I was in high school, oh my God, yeah, that was just me. Is that weird? Am I a weird person for that? Because I <laughs> said it to Harmony last night, very matter of fact, and she looked at me like, that's not a thing I've well, ever seen.
1: Again, it, it's the closeness between boys and girls, and I grew up in a completely different world than you where it's like, you can't even sleep in the same bed as a guy on like a road trip because it's gay. Okay, that's a great point.
0: Alexia, how were you growing up with like intimacy with your friends?
2: Okay, so this is funny because I was bringing up that like thinking I was crushing on a guy when really I had a crush on the girl. Uh-huh. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the main examples of that was this girl who I befriended because I had a crush on her boyfriend but I used to literally spend the weekend spooning her watching The whole Word. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: straightest thing I've ever heard.
2: <laughs> and I didn't realize that was gay until like a decade later. <laughs> that makes me
0: think so much of Fortune Feimster's stand-up special where she talks about how she just applied lotion to people when they needed it. Like, (laughs) oh, do you need me to like lotion your back? I could do that. And now as an adult, like an openly queer adult, she looks back like, what a weirdo I was. (laughs) (laughs) Because just when you don't, when you have this queerness inside you and it's manifesting in ways that you don't understand, you, I don't know, sometimes you spoon people and watch the L word.
2: It was weird because I identified as bisexual from like the age of 12 but mm-hmm. for some reason, I didn't make that connection with, like, my friends in my life that I had crushes on. I made that connection with, like, Kira Knightley and, like, um, Angelina Jolie. Mm.
1: Well, is, maybe that's the whole thing of, like, uh, the teenage fantasies, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the idea of, like, oh, well, a teen movie is a fantasy. It's not reality. It's like, oh, well, that's, that's the dream of who you could get with as opposed to, like, I don't know. I, I've always compartmentalized the people in my life, so I've never really considered friends Anything more than friends, other than maybe like really good friends. So I don't know. Was that how that was for you, or again, am I the person who's just over here being like, I don't do things with friends?
2: (laughs) It's definitely not me anymore. (laughs) But Uh back in the day, I, I think that's a good read.
0: Yeah, I was very like touchy feely with all of my friends because just one, I was a baton twirler, so you spend like a lot of time with people just in close proximity to each other. There's also a lot of, like, there's also a lot of comfortability that you have with each other's bodies, and not in, like, a sexual way, but just in, like, a I am going to be, like running a baton around your body while you've thrown something in the air and are spinning around like you have to trust that i'm not going to like knock you over or i'm going to be doing a flying leap above your head you need to trust that i'm not going to kick you in the face so that adds a level of intimacy and then also the fact that i was a theater kid and that also requires a lot of intimacy a lot of trust so because of that the friendships that i made with those people were also like extremely intimate like cuddling at cast parties in a non-sexual way or like, hey, I'm having a bad day. I'm coming over and eating pizza and we're just going to like lay with each other in the middle of a living room and watch all of the seasons of Sex in the City that we've gotten from Blockbuster. Like that (laughs) was amazing. (laughs) That was like my upbringing. So everything was really, really close. And that continued, honestly, until I stopped doing theater because those were the people I was with. So I was always really, like, physically close and intimate with them. Um, so I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's, it's a weird thing to navigate. And I think it's also weird for a lot of people to understand, which is why we get the miscommunication relationship plots. Because I also think people struggle understanding that there are some relationships that are non-romantic that are intimate. And so that's why you see somebody being excited and touching. And that is read as like, oh, they're kissing. (laughs) Um, Or like, oh, I saw that kiss. And that clearly means relationship and love when that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just an expression of a very intimate feeling you have with another person. So there's also a, a, a read that could be made in terms of like almost asexuality in this movie where you can talk about intimacy completely separate from sexuality. And that's really interesting. I mean, obviously that's not what the text is telling us. It's a read that can be made.
2: Um, This movie has so much going on. (laughs) I know something too. This is kind of going back a little bit, but um, one of y'all, I can't remember who, who it was. I think maybe Harmony brought up, um, that we don't see just have a lot of friendships, like female friendships until Jules. And I kind of want to unpack that a little bit, because something I was noticing in my rewatch was that, you know, this is obviously supposed to be like a feminist film, you know, it's like women breaking out of gender roles. Mm -hmm. But I felt like there was this kind of femme phobia that was upheld throughout the film. Yes. Um, (laughs) Justice for Pinky, (laughs) where like, you know, the dads are shown as the ones being really supportive. They're like the ones who lean into modernity. They're like, okay, with cultural change. And then the mothers are like confined to tradition and they're really superficial and worried about reputation. And, you know, Jules and Jess seem to kind of just feel like they're better than other girls and Pinky and then like her friends because they're you know, they want something more, not just something different. Yeah. I
0: mean, there's that line during Pinky's wedding where they're in the car and she's like, well, don't you want this? Isn't it wonderful? And she's like, no, I want I want more than that. I want to play mm-hmm. soccer. I want to go to the States. And it, there is some like weird femme phobia stuff going on in here, but at the, like – It's weird because like we see Pinky's friends and they have the quote unquote shallow conversations about like, well, now I can't wear my contacts if she's going to wear contacts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's such a staunch visual difference between Pinky and her friends and then Jess, who's in like a sleeveless hoodie and got her hair in a ponytail like it's clearly the not like most girls look of Mm -hmm. the early 2000s. Um, So we have all of that going on, but then at the same time, there is this constant stress of like, you have to look good for boys and like you have to not be so muscular and you need to be like wearing more makeup. You would look so nice if you just did this. And it's so interesting how the movie is at the same time, both so critical of these women who fall into these roles, but at the same time is constantly like hitting you with the messaging of like, no, but you have to be femme. And it's just, again, it's interesting. Like (laughs) upon rewatch as an adult and recognizing as a kid that I probably took in the messaging of, you know, you don't have to just be this way. There's more to life than being a wife kind of thing. And yeah, that's a good message to have. But then at the same time, it's like, but how do I navigate that with, oh, but I have to look a certain way and I have to do certain things. And this is the pressure that I'm hearing and having affirmed by all of culture around me 24-7. Um, how, how do you step out of that as a, as a teenager? And I think the answer is that it's complicated and causes a lot of us a lot of uh, anxiety about our own appearance and place in the world and gender performance. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the film
2: equates freedom with masculinity. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. It would have been nice to see a bit more from some of the other soccer players who are maybe more femme or just have a different relationship to their gender than Jess
1: and Jules do. Yeah, but I I feel like... This movie's already almost two hours long, and I would love to have elements like that explored. But I think the story that it's specifically targeting is um, just the the, the trickle down influence of parents, because mm-hmm. we we have that with all of our three main characters in this kind of like love triangle. Um, Joe has his dad, who's like, "Oh no, your mom's a walk in the park. She laughs. She's you know a great time compared to my dad." And then my brain goes to like the worst things that dads can do. Where it's like, "Ah, he's a drunk and he hits you and he does all the things that." My dad did. Um, But, like, the cruel irony is that with both Jules and Jess's moms, I see bad elements of my mother in there as well. Um, So, like, I have this weird relationship where I'm like, oh, I I like these moms. Like, they're trying, but also they have the sloppy, unpleasant parts of my mom, so I don't enjoy them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like they devoted that screen time to the father's. Mm-hmm. Like giving them their time to shine and explaining why they acted the way they did and why they want to be better versus maybe the mothers having a chance to talk about how things were for them in their generation. And mm-hmm. these are all like survival skills, you know, as far as they're concerned, yes. they're trying to help their daughters survive. But it's not really given that empathy in the way it's portrayed. It's just like oh, these like these traditional women are just holding us back.
1: Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. I'm a sucker for like a heartfelt dad speech. And Jess's dad has a really nice one. But yeah, it it, it is unbalanced.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And yeah, piggybacking what Harmony said, we love a good dad speech, and that is its own trope. And it's one of those moments where we are seeing a character reckoning with their own trauma through the lens of their children. And I wish that we were able to see the mothers do the same. I mean, there are tiptoe moments where you think maybe we're going to finally unpack that, but then it doesn't end up happening, which is so strange for a movie that has forever been positioned as like a feminist classic or what have you. Um, because I think you're right. I think it does position masculinity as freedom and also that masculinity is, quote unquote, the only way to subvert these gender roles. So it's like it's a very binary way of thinking. Whereas there are moments when you see Jules, who is, you know, presented to be like the tomboy character who really doesn't like things girly. And that's why mom has to like hot glue bows on shoes or what have you. But then when we see her in other elements, like she has such a like sporty femme, like chapstick lesbian look to her where mm-hmm. it's she's I don't read her as like like she's not butch, but she isn't femme. like she falls somewhere in the middle and like that that on its own is subverting gender. and that I don't think is given as much weight as like literally leaving a wedding and taking off all of like the traditional outfit and and all of that presentation to then put on like shorts. Like that, I think, is the the stark contrast that we're trying to paint here when they're both subverting these roles in their own way. But it's very clear that one of them is seen as more powerful than the other.
2: So now I'm wondering what y'all think of like, this movie does kind of have a makeover scene. It does, weirdly. <laughs> right? So what do we make of that then?
1: Which one? <sighs> the one when they go clubbing?
2: Yeah, they go clubbing and Jess comes out and she looks amazing. Like, oh, she looks, she looks so hot. So she <laughs> looks incredible.
1: That dress is such a good fit. Like, and that's borrowed. Like, oh, geez.
2: And it's See, surprising, too, because she actually seems very comfortable in her skin in that outfit. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: I she think does. that it's probably because, um, at least this is just what I'm thinking, is that she's dressing up for her rather than being like, forced to dress up by her mm. mom. Mm hmm.
0: I think that's definitely a part of it. And I also think that the outfit that they give her specifically, it feels like an extension of who she is. Like, it's still – it like, it's one, it's black, so it's not, like, hot pink, which I think is not really her thing. Yeah. Um, it is an unconventional fabric. It looks like it's, like, a pleather or, like, almost a wet look sort of thing that is different than sequins or something that either – Pinky would wear or I mean when we even see Jules like she has that very specific like halter top from the early 2000s that's back like I know that is backless Mm -hmm. and has like the droop in the front like that was a very popular look at the time and like that with like the pants makes it kind of like edgy and fun but she does look very comfortable and like the lip that they give her is like a really deep shade it's not trying to be like hot pink or red or something that is Typically associated with like, oh, these are femme colors. Um, Mm -hmm. So the makeover scene, to me, it just feels like somebody, I guess, pushing her towards where maybe she sees herself, um, but is not sure how to express Um, But then at the same time, like it is borrowed. So like she doesn't really have a full say like she there's no scene where she's like, yep, this is it. That's the outfit. That's the one. It's just like, we gave you this. So again, it makes it complicated. This whole movie is so complicated to unpack.
2: Hearing you talk, too, I'm like, oh, my God, it's goth femme. And, like, that's (laughs) so gay. (laughs) So, of course, she likes it. I'm wondering, too, if, like, part of her presentation is really just trying to fly under the radar. Like, she just doesn't want to be noticed by guys. Yeah,
1: I could see that.
0: Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, they're going into a dark club and she's wearing the darkest colors. Her hair is down. So now we essentially have like this beautiful black cloud like around her face to kind of like keep her hidden.
2: Oh, I (laughs) I think you might be onto something there. Okay. Y'all are welcome to edit this out, but I wrote a note that I thought was funny. So I just want to share it (laughs) with you Please
0: do. Please do.
2: Okay. So this is one of my like iPhone notes as I was watching the movie. They go clubbing. Jess has a pleather little top and skirt. Looks so hot. Joe is clearly checking her out. Jules tries to seduce him, dancing in a sparkly napkin, and fails because, obviously, Jess is wearing a backless pleather top.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I don't know what it says about me. Lies, I do know what it says about me. But I would absolutely be more drawn to the person in pleather than I would the person in the sequins. And that's just my brand of queer. (laughs) You are
1: extremely biased, though. I know. (laughs) Me too.
0: (laughs) And something else, too, is just drinks a lot at this club, um, mm-hmm. like a lot, a lot, and I don't know about y'all, but when I was in like high school and college, if I was struggling with my gay feelings in a public space, I sometimes drank a lot too to make it a little quieter or to make me not care. <laughs>
1: Um, I mean, I, I don't have that personally, but we already established earlier in the movie that she drank like a Coke when these two went to a pub together. So this is something that is like arguably new in this environment for her, you know?
2: Do they show her drinking in that scene? I think she has like a glass of champagne.
0: Okay. Like that's the only time we see it. But as she's acting, it's clear that she has been drinking a lot or just like, one-and-done kind of thing, because she doesn't drink often.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might be one of those situations where you can't show her drinking in order to get the rating that you want, because it mm. is still trying to market to, like, teens.
0: Yeah. And you know, the drinking ages are different between the UK and the US. hmm So, yeah, no, that's a good point. That it, that might just be for ratings and censorship issues. But she, she does feel like she's letting loose a little bit. Oh, and, yeah. And... Uh, I can't tell if she's letting loose because, like, yay, I'm excited I'm out on the town or if it's the combination of, oh, God, struggling queerness or just the anxiety of I'm lying to my
2: parents or Mm -hmm. it's just the perfect storm of all of it.
1: I I vote for that one.
2: (laughs) That scene is so hard to watch where Jules is trying to get Joe to go dance and then he just wants to dance with Jess. And I'm, like, same, I get it, but, like, it's so hard to watch.
0: I get secondhand embarrassment when I see stuff like that. Because it's like, oh no, you're trying really, really hard and this is not happening for you. And I'm just watching you like flail in the corner. It's, yeah, it's hard. I mean,
1: I, mean I, I do love that that whole scene, BJ's like, this is embarrassing, but also I really like this song.
0: <laughs> okay, no, let, let's let talk about that. They sneak so much of Melsie in this soundtrack. <laughs> Like, there's even the joke that Jules' mom makes about, like, why Sporty Spice doesn't have a man, which, first off, rude. Uh, she <laughs> carried the Spice Girls because she is the lead on all of that, first off. Um, but I love that they just, like, sneak in Mel C. music in this. It's like, yeah, we love you, Sporty Spice. Uh, here's I turn to you in this club scene. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, <laughs> I love this. Give me more. Okay, but speaking of the dancing scene and and Joe um joe is not the ideal mate in my opinion so alexia what are uh
2: what are some feelings you have about joe yeah i mean part of what makes that dance scene so uncomfortable is like he kind of has predator eyes you know like just the way he's (laughs) like the way he watches her walk out the way he's like trying to get her on the floor like it's just very clear what his desire and what his intentions are um, and there's, you know, like you said, there's so many things. Like, we can talk about the age gap. She's probably 18. How old do y'all think Joe is?
1: I think uh, Joe's... Somewhere like, in his 20s. I think he's, I would like, assume. 24. Yeah, okay. I, I wouldn't think older than 25.
2: Okay, well, regardless of the age gap, you know, he's her coach. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Jess's best friend and closest teammate has a huge crush on him, which he's well aware of. Um, but for me, like, the biggest red flags I see is... You know, he shares that he had this really shitty father, and I think I agree, Harmony, it's like kind of hinted that he was perhaps abusive, but then it's kind of like he replicates this same dynamic as the coach of the team with the girls where he's really harsh with them and yells at them, and then later he's like, oh, this is how my dad was with me. Um, so I don't know. I just – I feel red flags from him, and I'll trust them. He also shows up at people's houses.
0: And, like, I understand that we don't really have text messaging as common as we once did back then, but the frequency in which he shows up at Jess's house is weird to me, and I know that some of it is like, oh, well, he's having the conversation with the parents because he wants to get her on the team. I get that. Uh, Phones exist. You could call, um, maybe not show up unannounced, maybe plan, hey, I would like to come over and talk to you, and... It's again, it's complicated because then it goes into like, well, what if they say no? Well, one, respect the boundary, but then we, you know, we don't have a movie if that happens. Well, um.
1: Yeah, I uh, men particularly of this era are. They believe strongly in like gestures, particularly grand gestures. Like, yeah, he could have made a phone call, but it's more impressive if he shows up, and that matters more. And I think that's probably what was going through his head.
0: Yeah, it's. Just, I think it's just misplaced. Like, mm-hmm. it's not the way that you handle this. Yeah, it, Joe rubs me the wrong way, in, in a lot of ways, I'm very much on pro. Like just going to college in America and figuring herself out, and he can stay in the UK and coach soccer. Um, I also think that it's, like, very weird that at the end he announces, like, oh, they they offered me the job to coach men. I said, no, I'd rather coach women, and then maybe one day I can hire you to, like, be on my team. And it's like, you are – planning like years down the line for the ways in which like you are going to make sure that this person stays in your life. And that is very weird to me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I almost forgot too that his like his opening scene is so bad. Like he's such a dick to Jess. And it's so obvious. It's because of like her race, what she looks like. And then he spends the rest of the movie just white explaining racism to everyone where he's like mm-hmm. it's telling her dad like, oh, it's it's not like that anymore. It's not bad. And then telling Jess, oh, I'm Irish. I know what it's like. And it's like, dude, you were judging and discriminating against her too when you first met her. There is a really weird like cyclical abuse pattern that we see
0: kind of with him. Um, not even just the issues with his dad, but like he's so shitty to her. But then we'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry about your leg. I also have, like, scars. No one's going to care about it. You're going to be great out there. And I understand in that moment it's like, okay, I'm relating to you, showing you that people have scars, um, validating that that must have been really awful to feel, but, like, you're super talented. Like, go out there, kick ass. Like, I understand, like, this is a coach platitude sort of speech. And it seems like there's a lot of that, where he'll do something really shitty And then almost immediately after, he does something really, really meaningful, which to me has big, like, dad hits you and then buys you a toy to apologize energy.
1: I also feel like as far as, like, him, maybe it's just the writing, but, like, that's what we have to work with with this character. But everything that he reveals about himself is in, like, a kind of really self-centered way where it's like, hey, I'm relating to you by telling you that we're really similar. And look, look how much we get along. And we have the same thing in common because I have a busted knee, which is exactly like your burn. And all of his relations are through himself. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And I mean, that also gets into like a complicated territory because at least in the last like three, four years, we've been having a lot of conversations about the way that like people who are neurodivergent relate to people. And a lot of times it is through like, lived experiences because this is a way of showing empathy. And, you know, that that again makes the character complicated Or it's like, do we assume that his ways of relating to her are in bad faith or is there something else at play? And, like, we don't know. The text does not tell us. These are only things that we can speculate about, which is half the fun of analyzing movies is because that's what you get to do is you get to find these scenes and interpret them in a hundred different ways and figure out like what works
2: and I don't know, art's cool. I like film theory. It's fun. (laughs) So I going back to that scene that y'all brought up, um, where they're talking about the burn and he's like, Oh, I have a scar, it's the same. Um, he actually says to her, he's like, Once you go out there, nobody's gonna care. And I feel like that really stuck out to me because I felt like, you know what kind of what he was saying is like when people see your talent, they're not gonna care about your burn and then later you know guys are making fun of her for the burn and she's like well I can still kick your ass you know and she starts to play soccer mm-hmm. so I'm just kind of wondering about like what that says about like I feel like that's implying that like if she didn't if she wasn't a soccer star people would care Like because she has this access to soccer she's not confined by these same sort of feminine expectations put on other women or like if she had a burn and was like one of Pinky's friends that no man would be interested like I'm not exactly sure what I want to say here but that that line just kind of stuck out to me that it seemed like he wasn't saying oh no one's going to care about your burn but no one's going to care because you're a good soccer player I think it
0: falls into a very popular social push in the 2000s of the handicapable and Mm. the reframing of people with disability um, or any sort of like physical, I hate the word deformity, but if like something is outside the norm, um, there was a big push of like, we're just like you assimilation, um, which whenever those movements happen, like we saw it in the States around the time of like trying to get gay marriage legalized. A lot of those plans for assimilation and these social pushes are because people are just really, really desperate to try and make sure that they have access and rights to things. And that was a huge thing in the 2000s was like, we're handicapable. Like, we don't have a disability. We're just like you. Or look at what we can do despite our disability. And I think this conversation kind of falls in line with that of – who cares that you have, you know, this really traumatic experience from a child that has left you permanently scarred? You're really good at soccer, so it doesn't actually matter. And it's like, mm, it still does matter and like that situation still happened and still sucks and this is a constant
2: reminder of that. Both can be true. BJ I'm like snapping over here. I feel like that was where my brain wanted to go and it wasn't quite <laughs> there yet. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> you are very welcome. I actually this is like side tangent but Uh, you know, the shows about how these movies relate to us. I had a conversation the other day with somebody who works with, like, a pancreatic cancer foundation, which I'm a survivor of pancreatic cancer. And I had to explain to her how upsetting my existence is to a lot of family members of, you know, people who have lost someone to pancreatic cancer. She's like, what? Why? And I was like, because I'm a fat atheist. So my existence, like, debunks a lot of these mindsets that people have that make them feel better about things of like oh they were the fittest healthiest person in the world the disease was just too strong and that's why Mm. you know they they left us or you know they were the most devout person in the world and god called them home and that's what had to happen and i was like yeah i like don't fit into that nice like survival narrative and it like fucks with people like people don't like it when somebody who is chronically ill or disabled or has any sort of like visible affliction if they don't fit in that like motivational inspiration story people hate it and just because she's good at soccer is allowed to fit in that category of like this girl was burned as a child on her leg but she can still bend it like Beckham like that's how she falls into this like equation of all of it and that's something in all honesty did not make that realization until we started talking about it just now and then the light bulb went off
2: yeah absolutely and it's interesting because it's like we can interpret it along the lines of disability as well as race and gender you know you already talked a bit about the model minority and there's like there are all these layering ways in which she is doing that definitely looks awful i
1: can't wear shorts ever
2: jesus That's a stunner. I thought I'd have had one on my knee, but yours is gorgeous.
1: Look. Don't worry about it. No one's going to care once you're out there. What happened? Yeah, I want to (laughs) know. Look.
2: Two operations later, and it's still useless.
1: Yours affect your game. Nah, it just looks awful. I was eight. My mum was working overtime at Heathrow and I was trying to cook beans on toast. And I jumped up to the grill to get the toast, my trousers caught alight, so my sister put me in the bath, poured cold water over me and pulled them off. But half my skin came off too. <laughs>
0: Okay, so to pivot to something I guess a little less serious but still just as important. I would love to talk about Pinky's wedding and this situation surrounding it and everything about it. So Harmony, how was your response to seeing this cuz this was your first time seeing like what like a Punjabi wedding looks
1: like, isn't it? Yes. This this felt like, uh, well, I mean, OK, so she says, oh, I can't just slip out and go to practice and go to the game. And like, that's just not an option because this this is way more complicated than you understand, because apparently this wedding ceremony is like a week long. Yeah. And it was like that feeling when we did Shiva baby. And it's like, oh, yeah, you sit Shiva for a week. I was like, oh, my goodness that's just so much time with my family. I don't know how to handle that. But at least in this circumstance, it's like really fun and really colorful and everyone's having a great time. So like, no, I, I like this. Granted, the part of me that gets exhausted by people would prefer it be one day. I I personally would like to go to the wedding <laughs> <'cause> the <laughs> wedding seems great.
2: <laughs> Alexia, how about you? So I actually... I did get to attend part of an Indian wedding in India when my uncle got married in Jaipur. Um, But I actually got a nasty migraine the day of the wedding itself. So I wasn't able to see the ceremony, but because it is like a week of festivities, you know, I got to take part. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, Indian's not a throw down. It was really really fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, that wedding looks like the most fun anyone could ever have in their life. Um, my claustrophobia kicks in a little bit when you see the party at the house. I'm like, oh, there's so everyone's touching. (laughs) And of course, you know, COVID brain does that, too, which is fun. But the thing that I think is so beautiful about that scene is like one, there is a subversion a little bit of the culture in terms of like Pinky is genuinely happy to be married. She is so excited mm-hmm. she gets to marry him to the point where even the videographer is saying to her like stop smiling Indian brides don't smile on their wedding day, which mm-hmm. is clearly a reference to you know sometimes people are not super chill and thrilled about the person that they've been arranged to be married to. And Pinky loves her husband so she gets to experience that euphoria of being a happy bride which I think is really lovely and such like a it's like such a little tidbit that you think is a throwaway line but there's so much being said about that with just that line and she's having the time of her life everyone is so celebratory it is so fun to look at because also Indian weddings don't fall into the same just like drab white people culture of weddings that we have all been subjected to by the media forever Mm -hmm. like oh my god white people weddings are so agonizingly boring and they're not fun to look at (laughs) because everybody's wearing like the most basic things humanly possible whereas like a lot of like traditional indian weddings they are so vibrant and full of life and it truly is a celebration and it's just so lovely to see, especially in this movie. I love how they will split between Jess's game and the wedding, and you see both Jess and Pinky like having the time of their life. And I think that that's like a really nice dichotomy, a bit binary on the nose for sure, but it's just nice visual storytelling.
2: So I'm not sure I agree with the interpretation about Pinky smiling. So, I mean, there's different cultural reasons, you know, depending on region or whatever, but I think it's not so much that, like, brides aren't supposed to smile because they're not happy with their situation, but, like, it could be um, they don't want to seem like they're fucking stoked to leave their family or, you know, in the case of, like, an arranged marriage, if they're all smiley, it could be, like, you know, maybe hinting that they've been really intimate when that's not supposed to be the situation if they're, like, you know, being traditional and being pious and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like with Pinky, she just doesn't really give a shit about tradition in that sense. Like she's been sneaking out and like hooking up with her boyfriend for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for me, I interpret her like big smile as her just kind of bucking tradition. And I think that she and Jess both do that, but because Pinky falls into more of a feminine presentation and is comfortable with feminine gender roles, she gets policed a lot less uh, than Jess does. Yeah, I
0: definitely can see that for sure. Um, I admittedly, like my read on that because I didn't know what it meant ended up coming from research that I did from an, a, a retrospective that was done on Collider um, by Aisha Pandoria. And that was kind of like her read on that mm-hmm. scene. So I was kind of parroting what I learned from her. Um, but no, I'm really glad that you brought that up because again, I think like, you're right, like, there's so many different ways that so many aspects of this movie can be read, which is why, even though I feel like as adults we're able to be more critical of the film than when we were younger, it's still such a rich text to assess. Um, I just find that very, very interesting. And something else that I didn't notice until, you know, rewatching it now is Pinky's husband is just kind of a guy. Like, Titu is kind of just an average guy like he's not this like mind-blowingly hot dude he just is a guy who wears like button-up t-shirt type things and loves her and like really cares about her and it was really nice to see a character really excited to marry somebody that wasn't, like, drop-dead end-of-the-world amazing because there is that really gross assumption that Jules's mom makes where she's like, I bet your parents are arranging for you to be with a doctor mm-hmm. because I think that is such a stereotype that a lot of people just believe in their heads to be true. So then mm-hmm. you see, like, his family come over and talk with, with you know, the the Barma family, and when they leave, I'm like, he's just, like, a guy, <laughs> how nice is this that shouldn't be something that i find very like relieving but it is nice
2: it's also nice to see an indian man like desiring an indian woman because there's often this trope of like indian men wanting to date white women basically like oh i don't want an indian wife like they're so traditional blah 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 um i'm thinking of that movie do you know what i'm talking about where it's that indian guy and there's the white girl who goes in a coma The Big Sick. Oh, the Big Sick. Okay, yeah. So I'm thinking about the Big Sick and how all of the Indian women in that movie were portrayed as just being totally undesirable and backwards. And like the only way that, you know, this Indian man could be modern and free is by dating a white woman. So I was really happy to see that trope not upheld in this movie in that way.
1: I, I just think it's really interesting to see this dynamic having grown up where i did i guess like i don't want to relate all of this through me and stuff but it's that ugliness that i saw in my mom where i have all my friends once i started hanging out in the city i was like the white person in my group of friends and as just a whim i asked her like well how would you feel if i dated someone who was not white and she went well what am i supposed to say to that i go well ideally that it's fine. She goes well. Then it's fine. I'm like, well, now I don't believe you. So like, that's that's really fucked up. And um, I I don't know. It's just it it's it's weird to see this this sort of cultural standard exist outside of just like my racist white mother, who would be I guess similar to Jules's mother, but her mom is at least she tries. So I I, I think that things just echo differently in different cultures. Um, and I, I can't really speak to that with any kind of authority, but I just think it was really, um, it, it drudged up um, uh, some memories for me that I was not prepared to when I sat down and watched this movie.
2: Yeah. And I guess something you just made me think of too, is that like anti-blackness is absolutely a thing in India, as is Islamophobia among people who are not Muslim. So that makes sense to me in terms of why Jess says, you know, she couldn't date a black guy or a Muslim guy. Um, In terms of that perspective, you know, towards a white guy or a Gora, like they say in the film, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is that moment after Jules's mom makes a big scene at the wedding where the Indian aunties are kind of sitting around and they're just like, oh, like, you know, white people never can let us be happy. Like we can never celebrate without them complaining about something. So I imagine Uh there might just be a sense of. Perhaps not the same like outright discrimination that is there, um, you know, against black folks or Muslim folks, but perhaps this sense of like unsafety around white people, because not just racism, but also like, you know, Britain is literally the colonizer of India. So there Mm -hmm. is like a very specific racial dynamic there. Um, So I imagine that there's probably some feelings about that, that he wouldn't fit into their family or that they just want to be able to be comfortable and uphold their traditions.
1: Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, even at a surface level, white people are annoying. Why are you crashing the party?
0: <laughs> no, I think that that's a really good point to be made. And in a very, in a very strange way, though, it is also refreshing to see a movie that doesn't position whiteness as the ideal. So often we'll see in movies where somebody who is from a marginalized identity is almost encouraged to seek out a white partner because they equate that with either like your life being better or what have you. And so it's weirdly very nice to see a family that's kind of like white people ain't shit, which is nice because we just don't see it very often.
1: Oh, I mean, just even to extend that outward for what we do on this show, how often do we have to acknowledge on like 90% of the movies that we cover that there's only white people in it in the teen girl genre?
0: Yes. We just
1: don't see other things, period.
0: The teen girl genre is so unbelievably white, like compared to just about any other genre of film. Like teen girl and like the weird... Like Christian propaganda films. Like they're at the same level of their diversity in a lot of ways. So even just Bend It Like Beckham existing, like taking away all of our criticisms that we have had and all of the conversations we've been having about it, the fact that this movie exists and that it made so much money is astounding because it completely bucks the trend of everything we've ever seen historically throughout successful teen movies.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. And I I can't think of any other Desi teen characters even now i mean other than um mindy kaling's show never have i ever
0: yeah no you're right i really the only other character that i can think of is in the new rebel wilson movie senior year um the actress is played by avantika vanandapu and she's been in a lot of indian films uh she was in a disney channel original movie um and on the series, Diary of a Future President, which is kind of cute, because that's kind of her character in the Rebel Wilson movie, is that she wants to be president one day. And um, she's she's Indian, and that's kind of it. I'm sure somebody listening right now is, like, screaming a movie um, very loudly at their their iPhone right now, and I apologize that I cannot hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's not very, very often, and... We do talk a lot on the show about the importance of representation, even when it's bad. Um, This episode will come out after our Heather's episode where I talk about, you know, Martha Dunstock in Heather's is not a great character, but you can take her from me from my cold dead hands Um, (laughs) because as a fat person, I need her. So I think that that puts a movie like Bend It Like Beckham in such an interesting place culturally. Because this movie has so many things that are mixed messaging, but at the same time, is like the importance is undeniable. Mm-hmm. So there's so much just rich content in this in this movie to dissect that we could probably talk about it forever. But I like to think that we've given a pretty big look at all things bend it like Beckham, and um, I think that means harmony. It oh, is yes.
1: time. Yes. <laughs>
0: Bend it like Beckham is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes and no, a maybe, or are you buying her ticket so she can go on her own?
1: So watching this movie the first time, I did not pick up on quite as many things that we discussed in today's episode because that's that's the fun of the job that I get on the show where I don't know anything about the stuff that we're watching most of the time. And so I didn't quite get to... Uh, I I didn't have quite as uh, as deep, digested thoughts as everyone else, unfortunately. But I still think this is like... A really fun movie that for the age group and the demographic it's targeting of young girls I think it's a great entry-level position to a lot of things that they will explore when they get older and I'd like to believe that this episode will be a uh, an entry point to discussing even bigger topics of this movie so yeah I'm, I'm gonna give it a yes I I enjoyed my time with it also um any climax that features Pavarotti is big in my book because I just <laughs> love him. So that was a delight. But yeah, that that's that's my feelings on it.
0: Well, beautiful. Um, I do also want people to know out there that there is a documentary about Bennett Lake Beckham and kind of its legacy specifically and how it inspired a generation of young girls to sign up for soccer and how there are some... Uh, Indian athletes who are working like today as professional soccer players or footballers um, that signed up because of Bend it Like Beckham, which I think is really interesting. So that. look that out um, if you want more, more content. I haven't finished it, um, but I was like, Oh, this is a really cool thing to, to assess. But Alexia, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, bringing, bringing, This movie and so much of your insight, uh, so many of the points you made are just absolutely brilliant and it was really nice to have you. So if you want people to find you on the internet, (laughs) where can they find you?
2: Yeah, so I do keep my private life pretty private, but I do have a podcast uh, called Whatever. I'll watch it. You're welcome to follow me on Instagram. It's at Whatever TV Pod. Um, I will be releasing some new episodes soon on Broad City, which I imagine will appeal to your listeners. So mm-hmm. check it out and feel free to DM me. I'm I'm pretty good at getting back to folks.
0: Amazing friends. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at B J Colangelo.
1: And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor, trap underscore Tori.
0: And huge thank you always, always, always to the Sonner Bombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out that is inspired by Bend It Like Beckham?
1: So I really like this soundtrack and I like that uh, specifically like the more indie fair on the soundtrack is a little more my taste so the band i wanted to shout out i wanted them to be british because that seemed appropriate um they i needed them to be from the uk and so the band i wanted to plug is called the tuts uh, I realized after sitting down to record this episode that the Tuts broke up over the course of the pandemic, which breaks my heart. Oh, no. They, were, they, wrote, they they were similar to like Taco Cat in that they wrote like really good um, feminist music that is unbelievably catchy. But it looks like the lead singer of Nadia Javed has started doing a solo career and has like been working with Kathleen Hanna. So like. She's still out doing things, so if you want to go listen to the back catalog, they have a couple albums that are really good. They also do a phenomenal cover with Girly of uh, Mr. 10pm Bedtime, and I just, you know, I, I I want to follow them as they do other things. I just really liked this style of music and this band and this sound, and I thought it was super fun.
0: Well, awesome. Everyone definitely check them out, and, you know, maybe if there's enough listens, they'll be like, oh, maybe we should get back together now that the pandemic is... Still going on, but people are pretending it's not. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> we'll get new music that way.
1: I would love it because, like, I don't know, man. It's one of those things where it's like Daisy and the Scouts released like a little bit of music and then broke up, and now everyone's like, "Fuck, Daisy and the Scouts are ro- are really good." I I would love that to be for this band because, like, they're a really solid DIY band I've been following for a long time.
0: Awesome. Well, friends, that takes us out on Bend It Like Beckham, as always. Save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This is where you spoil her. No, this is how it started with your niece. The way that girl would answer back and then running off to become a model wearing small, small skirts. Mom, she's a fashion
1: designer. She's divorced.
0: That's what she is. Cast off after three years of being married to a white boy with blue hair.
1: This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.